Well, good morning, Grace. I'm going to keep my jacket on, which is rare because I'm ne- rarely cold at church, but this morning I'm going to keep it on, keep it warm. Hey, well, thank you for writing new lyrics. We're going to sing this again in this series for sure. But you didn't say it. I was going to say, I, what I love, one of the things I love about these lyrics is the, the repeated line at the beginning of each of these four verses is, we see Jesus, which is right from Hebrews 2. And the point of saying, we see Jesus, the verse that comes right before it says, acknowledges that right now in the world that we live in, we don't see everything subject to Jesus, do we? We're surrounded by uh, things that grieve us and, and things that grieve the heart of Jesus and things that one day he's going to bring um, and make right. But it says, even though we don't see everything in subjection to Jesus today, this morning, even in our lives, it feels like we do see Jesus. He came. And we have the Gospels that, that remind us who he is, what he's done, what he said, and what he promised. And so this morning, and in this series, that's our, our, our desire, is to see Jesus and to remember in particular that our Lord suffered throughout his entire life, and he did it to redeem us, to save us, ultimately from all of our suffering one day. So I would like to begin this morning as we think about Jesus' grief. I just want to share with you a little about what I would say has been my most recent grief. You know, 2020 ended, and I'm sure you saw if you're on social media, you get close to January 31st and everyone starts posting memes and things about, oh, I can't wait till 2020's behind us. Woo! As if suddenly January 1st, like the new heavens are going to come or something. Well, January did not come like that for for our family, for me. Um, On January 15th, Friday, I'd just gotten home from work and was beginning to cook dinner, got the oven on. I get a call from... John Bickle, who's a buddy of my dad's over in Brea, who also had a key to my dad's apartment and who would pop in and check on him from time to time. And he called to say he had popped in and my dad was not feeling great and he hadn't texted any of us to let us know, but he thought I should come over. So I got in the car and I drove over and we get there and we pretty quickly decided we're going to call 911. I think he needs some help. He's taken to St. Jude and within a day, test results confirm that his heart had gone through atrial fibrillation and his heart had, had, had undergone some serious irreparable damage and, and, and was doing pretty poorly. And in combination with my dad's pulmonary disease that he'd already had for years, difficulty breathing, it was sort of the one-two punch that the, the, the heart d- damage along with his breathing was, was pretty serious. And, and so over the course of two weeks, I found myself with a new full-time job planning for two eventualities simultaneously. It was disorienting. At one point, you know, I would go from making plans, should the Lord give my dad more time? Where is he going to be and how are we going to care for him? Simultaneously having to make sad plans for if the Lord should take him soon and to handle his affairs. And in particular, the two verses that just kept running through my mind during those weeks were these verses from Psalm Psalm 103, verses 15 and 16. It says, as for man, as for us, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind passes over it and it's gone. And this was the line that really got me. And its place knows it no more. 
We were cleaning out my dad's apartment because he couldn't go back there. He wasn't going to be able to live on his own anymore. And we were clearing out his apartment and boxing things up while he was still alive. And it felt strangely like we were already erasing evidence of his existence before he was gone. Anyway, we, we were sort of surprised at how quickly his decline went. Um, it was heartbreaking to watch. Many of you, I'm sure, have, have watched death uh, coming up close, and often it comes with a lot of indignities, as I'm sure you know. But Sunday morning, January 31st, my brother Seth and I were sitting on either side of my dad's bed with the Grace live stream on the screen and Rob Lister preaching to us about life and death from the book of Proverbs. And just after the, the message finished, my dad's breathing started slowing and it seemed pretty clear that something was about to happen. And we each took a hand and, and within about 15 minutes, my dad peacefully passed. My relationship with my dad was complicated, as maybe you can relate with. It was far from idyllic. <laughs> but nevertheless, there's grief. And there's grief in layers, as, as you've probably experienced when you lose someone you love, someone, a family member or a close friend. There's grief over the loss. I mean, it's so strange. I, I have his phone, and we've stopped the cell service to it, but it still is on Wi-Fi, and, and his birthday was March 7th, and his phone starts going off with all the people on Facebook who got the little alert, had no idea, just filled out the little window. Happy birthday, Rick. Click. And there's this feeling of he's, he's, he's gone. He's not there. He's not reading those. But there's other griefs. I'm, I feel grief at this, the, the way that his sickness stole years of his life from him. And the last year of COVID and fear of COVID really stole life from him, physically isolating him so much. And I grieve over the ways that our relationship was struggling. There's grief over ways that my dad fell short as a dad in my life and my brother's life and my sister's life. And there's grief over ways I fell short as a son in my younger days and even recently. And all the while in these weeks leading up to and following my dad passing, I was so aware here at Grace, I am not alone. In fact, last Sunday night at our members meeting, we, we devoted the time because we are so aware of the griefs so many of you are carrying right now that we devoted the whole time to just prayer of lament that Walt beautifully led us in. I'm not alone in my grief. Aren't we all acquainted with grief? Maybe not this morning. Maybe this morning, a little snapshot of your life today feels pretty good. And I don't mean to be an Eeyore, but the reality of living in a world that's subjected to a curse is that grief is ahead, even if it's not being felt today. Last Sunday night, we ended our time just reciting, we didn't even sing it, just reciting the Andrew Peterson song, Is He Worthy? But it opens with the question, do you feel? Do you feel the world is broken? And what's the answer? Yeah, we do. Just as a glimpse of some of the things that were prayed about last Sunday night and lamented cancer, heart disease, heart deformities, muscular dystrophy, 
multiple sclerosis, diabetes, arthritis, dementia, depression, anxiety, loneliness, death of many, death of parents, death of children, death of brothers, sisters, loved ones, lamenting loss, loss of abandonment, loss of estranged relationships, the loss of dreams, the loss of whatever the last year has taken from you, fill in your own blank. And a thousand things cause us to cry out like the Psalms do, many of them. How long, O Lord? How long is this going to be what we expect? Grief. What new grief is coming this week? We're all acquainted with grief. That's why this morning, the main point of this message, I think, is so encouraging and comforting to us. The main point this morning is this. It's simple. It's already been stated beautifully by Mindy with our children's chat. Jesus was acquainted with grief. Jesus was acquainted with grief. Isaiah 53.3 was a promise that God gave long before Jesus came of this promised anointed one who he was going to send, who would be a Messiah, a savior, and he was going to be God's servant. And one of the things was said of him was that he would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Acquainted. In other words, he would know grief. He would be familiar with grief. Now, I want to back up for a second. In one sense, the son of God has always known grief, right? The Son of God, as is God the Father, as is the Holy Spirit, has always been, will always be all-knowing. Which I believe includes not just knowing all things, but knowing all perspectives. Rob Lister, thank you for your help in this this week. He pointed me to a theologian, John Frame, who, who, who says that not only does God know all things, but I believe that part of that knowledge is that he knows every perspective. This is how Rob put it in a little email exchange we had. Not only does God know everything, but he knows from the vantage point of every perspective, even ours. But there's still a difference between eternally knowing what our perspective is or might be and actually taking on that perspective by becoming a human subject. There's something new that the Son of God invited into his life when he became a man, something he made himself vulnerable to. That's what Jesus has done. Hebrews 2.17 says, Jesus was made like us in every respect. And this is one of those respects, vulnerable to suffering and pain and sorrow and loss and grief. A line from the, the Christmas carol, Come, uh, thou long expected Jesus has been on my mind this week. It says, come to earth to taste our sadness. A poetic way of saying, not just to know it or be acquainted with it, but to taste our sadness in his flesh. So how did Jesus taste our sadness? I want us to think a little bit about from what we know of Jesus in the gospels, where do we see glimpses of Jesus tasting our sadness? Well, as, as Mindy beautifully mentioned, Jesus experienced the same pain we do, uh, losing loved ones, seeing death take those he loved. I thought three people came to mind in the Gospels. One was his, his earthly father, Joseph, his adoptive father. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, 
born of the Virgin Mary, but he was raised by Mary and Joseph. Joseph was his dad. And we don't get a lot of detail about Joseph in the Gospels, but the little detail we do present a man who was honorable, loving toward his wife Mary, loving toward God, devoted to God. The last glimpse we get of him, Jesus was 12, and Mary and Joseph bring him up to Jerusalem to the temple to observe the Passover. And that's the last we hear of Joseph in the Gospels. As Jesus begins his ministry, it becomes clear somewhere in between age 12 and his ministry beginning, Joseph is gone and most likely he died. So it's likely that Jesus stood by his mother's side at his dad's funeral. And it's likely he then, for some number of years, as a carpenter, which he learned from his dad, worked by the sweat of his brow to provide for his mom, who was a widow. He knows the grief of loss. C.S. Lewis wrote a, a a whole book about grief called A Grief Observed, where he reflected on the profound grief that he suffered with the loss of his wife, Joy. And one of the analogies he gives in his book for losing a loved one, he says, it's like an amputation. It's like losing a limb. It's not just the pain, initial trauma of the loss, but then it's a thousand other pains. Sometimes at the the, the least (laughs) expected moment, of the absence, a reminder of moments that will never be. Jesus knows that feeling. How about, uh, how about John the Baptist? John the Baptist, if you don't know, he was the cousin of Jesus, right? Mary's cousin Elizabeth gave birth to John the Baptist, who was not just God's chosen forerunner to prepare people for Jesus' arrival, but he was his cousin, And John the Baptist was beheaded by Herod. And his disciples come to Jesus and break the news and tell him what what happened, how John died. And the next verse, Matthew 14, verse 13, says, When Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Can you relate to that feeling? Jesus, who never gave up his omniscience, never ceased being fully God, yet in his humanity became able to feel the sucker punch of bad news. That call that you never hoped to get. Jesus felt that. Or Lazarus, as Mindy mentioned, in John 11 says, whom he loved, along with his sisters Mary and Martha, Now, Jesus loves everybody, but in his days on earth and in his ministry, Lazarus was a particular person whom Jesus uniquely and specially loved. He was a dear friend who died. In fact, John tells us that Jesus got news that he was on death's doorstep and chose not to come in time to rescue him from death so that he might display a glimpse of the glory of God that he is the resurrection and the life. And you would think that given that, he would show up almost giggling with anticipation, right? Oh my gosh, this is going to be so exciting. They have no idea. Lazarus is going to walk back out of the tomb. Turn to John 11. Verse 33. 
when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who'd come with her, the whole funeral procession, the whole mourning party who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. The word even almost means angry. I don't think at all the people here, angry at death and the pain that death brings to us. And he says, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come see. Jesus wept. As a kid, that was the joke. That, that's the shortest verse in the Bible. That's all I, all I knew, John eleven thirty five. 35. It was the shortest verse in the Bible. I had no idea as an adult how precious those two words would become. Jesus wept. And so the Jews who, who saw Jesus weeping said, see how he loved him? And then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. Don't think that Jesus, because he is God, because he knows what's coming in the end, he knows why he's come, is immovable when it comes to our suffering. He felt it. He wept. He felt that feeling of separation and the wrongness of death. You know, a few weeks ago, Rob Lister, in that sermon about life and death, made the, the good point while death doesn't get the final say, that is our hope as Christians, it deserves our grief. Jesus' tears validate our tears. Grief and sorrow aren't necessarily signs of little faith. They're an honest reaction to something that, as Rob also said, death is an intruder that we all know deep down doesn't belong here. It's broken, it's wrong. It's not what God intended for us who created us body and soul to be body and soul, to have those things separated. Jesus felt the gut punch that death brings us. He knows that feeling. But that was just one form of grief that Jesus was acquainted with is suffering the loss of a loved one. In, in two weeks on Sunday, uh, we're going to spend an entire uh, sermon reflecting on how Jesus was despised and rejected throughout his entire life, particularly in his years of ministry as, as increasingly more and more crowds turned away because they just couldn't grapple with the things he said. They, they were just too hard to, to believe. And as religious leaders grew in their jealousy of Jesus and, and culminating in those last few days before he was on the cross, Jesus felt the sorrow and grief of coming to his own and his own didn't receive him. And on Good Friday, we're going to reflect, Randy's going to help us reflect on the unique grief that Jesus alone felt on the cross as he endured the Father putting him to grief in our place. All, in all these things, Jesus was tasting our sadness. He was becoming more and more acquainted with grief as a representative of us. But there was another way I think that Jesus experienced, was acquainted with grief. And that was for the entirety of his life, he was surrounded by the sorrows and the sadness of others. There's a phrase that you read frequently throughout the gospels as Jesus is moving from town to town and interacting with individuals and sometimes whole crowds is this phrase, Jesus moved with compassion. 
Jesus was moved with compassion again and again. And even though it, it says compassion, I think behind his compassion is an acquaintance with grief. His compassion, that word literally means a feeling in the bowels, in, in your gut. His heart broke, his guts. He felt it in his gut when he saw what? He saw the effects of the curse. When people brought their sick to him and those who were possessed by demons and they came in all their need to him. Turn to Matthew 9, just for a minute. One example of this. Matthew 9, verse 35 says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and all the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease, every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And he felt it in his gut, and his heart broke such that he couldn't help but just heal every one of them. Another story I was reminded of, it's only in Luke's gospel, but there's this precious little scene in Luke 7 where he and his disciples are coming into this town of Nain. And as they're coming into the city, a funeral procession is coming out of the city. And the one who's died, it says, was the only son of his mother. And the whole funeral procession's coming out and the son is wrapped and laid on this on this beer, this platform, and the, and the widow's following, and all the funeral procession. It says Jesus saw her, and he had compassion on her, and said to her, don't weep. And he came up, and he touched, he interrupted the funeral procession that he wasn't invited to. And he touches the beer, the, 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 the thing that, that the man is laid on, and the bearers stood still and stopped. And he said to the man, young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. Jesus spent 33 years surrounded with the suffering and the groaning of others. And we see how torn he was over this through his ministry between on one hand coming to a, a town and healing as much as he could like Luke 4.40, all those who had any who were sick with diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Can you just picture Jesus knowing the power of the Father to heal and seeing the brokenness he's surrounded with, just wanting to fix everyone. But then he's torn a couple of verses later, it says the people sought him, came to him, and they were going to try to keep him from leaving. Don't leave. Just stay here and keep fixing our brokenness. And he says to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom elsewhere to other towns. I was sent for this purpose. I think his acquaintance with grief was what made him so torn. On one hand, seeing all the brokenness and wanting to fix it, but knowing I can fix it, but it's only going to continue to be broken unless I do something about the ultimate cause of all, this, all the grief, ultimately at the cross. Is there any doubt this morning, Grace, that Jesus was acquainted with grief? Have I convinced you of that? Okay. Well, here's the second point then. Jesus is acquainted with your grief. He was acquainted with grief when he came the first time and lived and suffered 
and dying. But having tasted our sadness and become acquainted with grief, now the all-knowing Jesus ascended to the Father, awaiting the day he's going to return and make all things new. He knows and he sees your every single grief. Revelation 21, end of the Bible, describing the days that will follow Jesus' return and making all things new. It says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. Because, he says, the former things have passed away. What a tender image that is, right? Not just saying he's going to do away with all those things. He's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. Have you ever wiped the tears from a child's eyes? I've done this many times as a dad over the years. Sometimes tears because they hurt themselves physically. Sometimes emotional tears or disappointment or fear. But it's a very tender moment, right? You, you, you wipe the tear from the cheek and you dry it and you speak words of comfort and assurance. I'm here. I love you. You're safe. I'm with you. And that's the image given for the, what Jesus is going to do one day. He will wipe away every tear. I think it's a way of making the point that not a single grief will be overlooked by God. Not a single cause of your suffering, your, your sorrow and grief goes unnoticed by Jesus. Psalm 56, 8 says of God, you've kept count of my tossings. You've put my tears in a bottle. Are they not in your book? Implied answer, yes. Every single one. What's your greatest grief this morning? Right now, this morning, what's the one that feels the heaviest upon you this morning? Jesus knows. And he knows how it feels. Doesn't mean that Jesus has experienced in his life every single possible scenario and situation that might cause you your grief and sorrow, but he's tasted enough sadness to know how you feel. And he knows your grief. So in light of, this was my goal this morning, just for us to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus in particular that he's acquainted with grief and then say, what comfort does that give us? What comfort should I take from re remembering in my daily life as griefs come that Jesus is acquainted with this? I want to hit three. The first one is this. Because Jesus was acquainted with grief for a time, we will only be acquainted with grief for a time. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 for a moment. I love these verses and the opening of his letter. 1 Peter beginning with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because of that, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. 
who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. And then he says, in this present tense, you rejoice, though now for a little while, under that, underline that if you actually have your Bible open right now and it's not a screen. <laughs> for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why does Peter say for a little while? Is he trivializing our pain? Is he saying, come on, it's not that big a deal. Get over it. No. It's all because of his perspective. It's because of the verses that came before and the incredible future hope that we have in Christ, right? It's because of this living resurrection hope. We believe that if we have turned from our sin to Christ in faith, we've relinquished our sin and we've relinquished our, our self-control and we've surrendered our lives to him, that is a, a gift he gives us this promise among many, besides our sins forgiven, but with that, this promise of being with him forever and being part of an eternal future where things like death, mourning, tears, and pain will all be put into the category of former things that have passed away. That's why he says, for a little while, I know you're, you're grieving. I know these griefs hurt, but it's for a little while, church. And it's because Jesus came for a time and was acquainted with grief that we have this hope. Our assurance of this hope, the way Jesus secured this hope for us was through his grief. To his last breath, Jesus pleased the Father. Every step, every word, every action, pleasing the Father as we've all proven to be miserable failures at. Am I alone? Okay, good. And he came and he lived this sinless life and then he laid that sinless life down in our place as a sacrifice to atone for, to, to pay the penalty for our guilt. All our rebellion against God, Jesus bore the brunt, the full weight of God's anger toward that so that we might never face it. That's what we mean by the gospel, the good news. And I want us to think, though, connect the dots here to his acquaintance with grief. Think about Jesus' perfect obedience and then think he perfectly obeyed the Father throughout his life through mountains of his own sorrow and grief. Just think for a moment. How often in your sorrow and grief are you tempted to sin? I mean, when life's just going okay, we're still tempted to sin. But when tragedy hits, when suffering hits close to home and we're, we're grieving and we're, so, and we're down, there's so many te temptations to sin, to, to anger, get angry toward God and resentful and, and curse God or grumble against him in our hearts, to think unworthy thoughts of him, to ascribe to his character things that are not true of him. Sorrow can tempt us to take our pain out on others, can't it? Oftentimes, we multiply grief by the way we respond in our grief. It's amazing for me this week to think that Jesus, although he experienced the deepest anguish and sorrows, not once did that take him to a sinful place. He stayed the course, and to his last breath, 
please the Father in such a way that now God can count all that pleasure that he feels toward Jesus toward us in Christ. It's amazing. So how do we receive that gift if you haven't? We, we ask for it. We receive it open-handed like a gift. That's what, what the Bible says. We can't earn it. We can't pay God for it or pay God back for it. We receive it. And it doesn't take specific particular words, but basically you need to express this. I, I thought of a song we sang last Sunday night at our Lord's Supper service that couldn't say more beautifully and simply, here's how you receive that gift. You say, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. I receive this now. Forgive my sin. Come into my life. And he'll do it. In fact, if you have never done that, we would love to pray with you. After the service, I encourage you to look around. If there's someone you know, talk to them, pray with them. If you don't, that blue tent back there is for a purpose. It says prayer team, and they're back there, and they'd love to, to pray with you and talk with you more. Two last things that I think we should take comfort in from the fact that Jesus was acquainted with grief and he is acquainted with our grief. Number two, the thought that the one who ordains your suffering is acquainted with grief. Just think about that. Look back at 1 Peter 6. It says, in this you rejoice, although now for a little while, if necessary. Go ahead and underline that one too, if you're an underliner. If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. You might read that and think, who, thinks who is it that thinks trials are necessary? Well, Peter intends for you to understand, God does. God has purposes as the rest of those verses go on. Purposes, good purposes in hard trials and considers trials in his plan as necessary. And that can be a really hard truth for us to agree with from the heart when we're in it, can't it? And I find it encouraging and comforting, I hope you do, to stop and think that the one who sovereignly ordains the trials of my life, he is acquainted with grief. He prayed in the garden with tears of anguish. If there's any way, Father, can this cup pass from me? Yet not my will, but yours be done. And that thorn, Jesus asked the Lord to take away, his Father to take away. He couldn't take away. He didn't. He had good purposes in that for the whole world. That's the one who ordains our trials. The best analogy I could come up with was imagine an oncologist who has gone through cancer treatment, full rounds of chemo and radiation themselves. Do you think that that doctor is going to prescribe chemo and radiation haphazardly, carelessly? Well, let's just try this and see how this works. Knowing how terrible it is would prescribe it if needed, as needed. Surely our Lord Jesus does not prescribe any suffering, any trial that he does not deem necessary. And we may not in our entire life see or come to understand the necessity of a particular trial. But in eternity, I think it'll all be clear. And we won't fault God for anything. Last comfort is this. The one who comforts us in all our affliction 
was acquainted with grief. He's not just the one who ordains the trials of our life. He's also the one who then comforts us in all our affliction. Jesus is the one who said, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. By whom? Well, he's the one who makes good on that promise ultimately. You know, I was reminded again of the, the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus goes the night he's about to be betrayed and literally all hell is about to break loose on him. And he takes three of his closest disciples with him to the garden to pray. And he actually, in what he says to them, gives us an insight about how to care for others in their grief. Listen to this. He says to them, my soul is sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Stay awake with me. It's, it's very simple. It's presence. He's asking for their presence with him, their nearness, and their participation. They're entering into it with him. Be with me. Stay awake with me. Be vigilant with me. Pray with me. And we have the same promise from God himself. You don't need to turn there, but listen. This is the beginning of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Through whom? How does this comfort come to us? Verse five, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. Christ is the mediator now of this comfort. You know, remember when he said to his disciples at that last meal, it's actually good for me to go away. It's good that I'm, I'm gonna go to the Father because the Father's gonna send the Spirit, the helper, the, the comforter. Jesus, by his Spirit, is with us this morning to comfort us in all our affliction. So I want us to, to bow for a minute. Take a moment right here, right now to do this privately and to pray and lay our, our grief and our sorrows before Jesus and ask him to comfort. Here's the promise we have, grace as we do. Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let's hold fast our confession. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Just take a moment, individually, privately. Come to God's throne of grace. Come to Jesus. Lay your sorrows out before him. Ask him to, to comfort you. Ask him to give you perspective. Ask him to strengthen your spirit. Refresh your broken heart. And in a moment, Walt's gonna lead us in a closing hymn. Let's pray.